0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. This episode features the author of my summer history book, Must Read, Dr. Marsha Chatelain. Of course, we discussed her fascinating, did I mentioned Must Read, insightful and important and Pulitzer Prize-winning book about McDonald's impact on African-Americans over the past 60 years. It's called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And I also have another uh, summer must, a blueberry peach buckle, which is not quite on the same level as, say, reading a book. But if you make the buckle and then re- never mind. Also, revealed inside this podcast, the greatest sandwich known to humankind. I hope you enjoy. I know I'm making a lot of demands on you what was your reading list, baking. But if you can also do me the kindness of subscribing to my podcast and giving a gal a follow on Twitter, I truly would be grateful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, my guest on The Secret Life of Cookies is Dr. Marcia Chatelain, um, and it's a pleasure to have you and to join me here on two different platforms, really. We're starting today on Live Convos, which is a new social media platform um, that gives live video um, always on, and um, we're starting on that. And we will also be just for people's ears, too, for, uh, courtesy of my uh, podcast. So I thank you so much. Um, It is a
1: pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) um, And you bring so much to this. You're a professor of history at Georgetown, um, uh, African-American history and just history, you know, right? Is that true? Like, what is your fancy title at Georgetown?
1: Um, Well, I am a professor of history and African-American studies, and I often say that I am a specialist in African-American life and culture.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, You've also written a book called um, Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration, which is on my summer reading list. I'm sorry, I didn't have the chance to read it first, but I I can't wait. But what I've spent time doing is reading this book called Franchise, um, The Golden Arches in Black America. And I'm so grateful that I, am glad I read this book It turns out I'm not the only one who liked it. The Pulitzer Prize people also (laughs) approved of it. So, you know, I don't see my name on the front of this book saying Marissa really thought it was great, but that's okay because I think it's probably more important. Were you surprised to win the Pulitzer Prize? Not that you should have been, but were you?
1: Yeah, I mean, come on, like, who wins the Pulitzer Prize? it, It was such a weird experience because I had made peace that, like, my book was over because, I, you know, my book came out in January, 2020, then COVID happened. And so I canceled both of my book tours. So I just kind of came to the conclusion that like, okay, it had a nice run and now mm-hmm. on to the next thing. And so it was such an incredible surprise that I was like so weird. Cause I found out on Twitter because I wasn't listening to the announcement, because I wasn't going to win a pull surprise, so why would I care? So it was just a <laughs> really weird experience, and it's just been it's just been so lovely. Like people have been so congratulatory and thoughtful, and it's it's like my book has gotten a second life.
0: That's fantastic, and now it's out in paperback.
1: Yes, so it's more accessible, and hopefully, um, more students will be able to read it, and people will just you know be able to just take a look.
0: Well, I, I heartily recommend it as as a historian myself, um, the The value of this book is very, um, I, I love how it spans the entire 20th century straight up until today, from like 1903 when actual Mr. McDonald was born, and the same year, oddly enough, that the NAACP was born, <laughs> right? And um, all the way up until Ferguson and today and mm-hmm. talks about the impact of McDonald's on the African-American community. So it, how, bef- how did you get to that idea? Like, where did this come from? What was the genus for the idea?
1: So I have always, I love food. I love food culture. I love reading books about food. I, I was one of these kids who didn't have cable. So I watch a lot of PBS cooking shows. I mean, I've always been really interested. Me too. You know, Yan Can Cook, and you know, the, the old Julia Child, and Julian Friends, and you know, all of those things were just so fantastic. Um, but I've always been really curious about the ways that we talk about how people eat food. And one of the conversations that I remember um, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s was about race and fast food and health disparities. And every time I would hear those conversations, I would think to myself, well, surely there's a story of how fast food shows up in black communities, particularly McDonald's. And so what I was most interested in was historicizing our contemporary conversations about food to think about how we got here rather than to indict people for their individual choices.
0: I think that is such a vital message. I mean, in fact, that's one of the strongest takeaways I have from this book, which is this idea that so many of us do-gooders go waltzing into the thought about inner cities and what people are eating and start wagging our fingers and telling people to like, they should be you know, growing more vegetables and these poor people don't know what an apple is. And it's not as easy as that. And that to me is the large takeaway. Um, It's it's important reading I think for anybody. Um, Speaking of food, I'm going to take a small pause to remind everybody that we also cook on this show at the same time. And as much as you (laughs) um, can't cook, aren't joining me for cooking right now and can't even join me for eating because you have a four month old child. And there's no reason you should be cooking.
1: You know, I you don't when, have to. It's funny when he was a newborn, I tried to at least cook once, twice a week because every we're, we're like this, like this, like silliest, cheesiest new parents. But every Tuesday we have a birthday party for him because he was born on a Tuesday. So every Tuesday I try to cook something special. Um, but, you know, just the like high level of coordination of ingredients I can mm-hmm. no longer do. So I usually cook what's in the pantry. But what are what are we cooking today? Today I'm going to cook one of those um, sort of American, America is famous for things
0: that have funny names, like snickerdoodles, but also all the fruit desserts like buckle, slump, yep. grunt, you know, and more normal things like cobbler. Suddenly cobbler seems normal when you're talking buckle and slump. So for me, um, I'm making a buckle. Uh,
1: which is from North Carolina?
0: Is that correct? That many people think so, but everybody claims a this and a that. Right. You know, like right. the grunt maybe from the north, northern New England area, or maybe it's the slump. But I don't. You know what I'm saying? That everybody had their own version. Um, buckles are kind of amazing because they take a sort of streusel topping and turn it. Everything goes from the top to the bottom, and it sort of makes it easy, uh, almost upside down cake except I never turned it
1: upside down. So is it crunchy at the bottom? It's, it's kind of caramelly and oh, gooey. So it's kind of gooey.
0: It's sort of like a gooey cake. It's oh, so not so crunchy. I have some sure.
1: fresh blueberries in my refrigerator and I was thinking about making like a blueberry coffee cake in the New York Times uh, cooking like newsletter mm-hmm. they were talking about one with a yes. salmon swirl. And then I was like, oh, we don't have rolled oats. And then I gave up, <laughs> but
0: maybe exactly. like, and i just that's i made i started making this recipe when england was i'd like to say winning but possibly losing with the game on sunday and they were doing penalty kicks and i couldn't sit and watch so instead i decided to um cook and luckily i had some butter out this whole thing can be done so quickly um so i'm just mixing up the batter now which is butter and sugar, and it's soft, and you can mix it like grandma used to, you don't even need a mixer. And you don't need rolled oats, it's just stuff in your pantry
1: that you have. Well, you know, it's interesting, so the way that you're cooking like this batter with just the like hand mixing, this is how I remember my mom making cakes. I don't remember, we never had, we did not have a KitchenAid, I don't even know if we had, you know, the handheld mixers, she would sure. just drop in the butter all day long, and you just do it by hand, and it, it works
0: totally works. You know, they were, it was okay. And, you know, maybe her crumb had a few bubbles. It didn't matter. It was just, it's perfect. My grandmother, I learned to cook with. at my, my first thing I ever baked was with my grandma and she didn't have a mixer. She didn't have an anything. And I went to her and I was like, I want to make a chocolate cake. And I was like eight. And she's like, okay, let's do it. And so we made a chocolate cake and the rest is history. Right. And chocolate chip cookies never used. It was always,
1: Right. Yeah. You, you, know, you know what's funny uh, you're about the, the cake thing, I didn't know how you noted imperfections in baking until I started watching British Bake Off during the pandemic, yes. and it's like, oh, this is, you know, when the crust isn't cooked all the way, and these air pockets or your baking soda is, like, all jacked up, and so I was like, oh, this is, like, really fascinating stuff, um, right. and now I made... um. I made a cake recently for friends actually after I found out about the Pulitzer. Well, what, here's, what's, here's what's kind of weird about finding out something major like that. Like no one was around. It was just me and the baby at home. So I'm just talking to like the baby. I'm waiting for my husband to get home from work. Um, I don't, you know, like ever. I have a lot of friends with small children. They're still being safe about going out and I'm kind of in quarantine still. And so like, you know, my husband said, well, what do you want me to bring home to eat? And all I wanted was, um, all I wanted was a slice of cake from Milk Bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is delicious, the chocolate cake. I wanted pizza and I wanted champagne. But the next day, we were going to Friends We house. have the same
0: palate, you and me. That is exactly what oh, the best celebration food. Celebration
1: yeah. food. But then, um, some friends were having us over and I made a chocolate chip banana cake with a peanut butter frosting. It was so good. And it's one of those desserts you have to have very cold. The flavors are so good when it's like, like refrigerated and kind of cold.
0: That's a really good tip. It, maybe I, you could lend me the recipe. One of the things I read in your book, and of course, there's a lot of very heavy stuff in your book, but of course yes. one of the things I took away from it was your birthdays at McDonald's when you were a kid and oh the cake. Tell me about the cake.
1: The chocolate banana cake. So I have been trying to get information on the suppliers of this. So my local McDonald's, when you have a birthday party there as a kid, and every kind of region did the birthday parties differently. Sometimes they had a little like seating area, they decorate, mm-hmm. everyone gets a cheeseburger and french fries. Sometimes they let, I've heard stories of letting kids back in the kitchen, which I don't think is a great idea, it's not really safe. But anyway but the the standard cake was one of these chocolate banana cakes with white frosting and like yellow you know yellow happy birthday on it and sprinkles but what was so delicious about it they kept it very cold and when you have a cheaper dessert you have to have it very cold i don't know why it's it it's because when it gets room temperature and it gets a little warm you start to t- taste the like low quality butter, I think, and the local. But For freezing, that's why those um, Sara Lee pound cakes. Oh my God, God Sara Lee pound cake. You don't want to thought thoroughly. You want it just, mm-hmm. you want it really nice and cold.
0: Absolutely. It stays really, somehow, denser when it's cold. Yes. Sara Lee pound cake. <laughs> that is, yep. I could bake all I wanted to, but there's never. some tastes that you'll never get. I feel compelled to have to try and recreate your um, chocolate banana cake.
1: It's, it's Even- delicious because, you know, it's a flavor pairing that we don't do very often, but when you have it, you're like, this is so good. And then peanut butter is, is kind of controversial because, I, you know, I don't make it very much because of people's peanut allergies. Um, but when you can find a crowd that can enjoy it, it's good stuff.
0: I have, a, I make a, a ring-shaped banana cake with chocolate frosting that I crumble. Um, Peanut butter cups into, and then I decorate the top of it. That okay. sounds so good. Yeah.
1: Well, you know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk, talk about McDonald's because that's that's what my book is about. But you okay. know, um, when I was doing research for the book at the National Museum of American History at the Archives Center, they have prototypes of carrying case for strawberry shortcakes. So. Ray Kroc, who is not the founder of McDonald's, but created the franchise model, he mm-hmm. had really bad ideas, and he was always trying to bring in food that no one wanted, so he he tried kolaches, the, you know, the Eastern European so Polish uh, yeah. um, pastry, like donuts. Yes. like donuts he tried to do this thing well, you could buy six at a time and so the designer um, for a lot of their products had to come with a carrying case for six strawberry shortcakes, none of it made sense it's like it'd be like a little like um kind of like a like a a pound cake with whipped cream in the middle and strawberries at mcdonald's that's not the kind of dessert that works there um he tried sandwiches just didn't work
0: and imagine trying to eat a strawberry shortcake in your car
1: it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense i have a hard enough time eating neat food in my car let alone so fast food desserts are also very fascinating to me because um, I remember when the apple pie at McDonald's was deep fried and it was so yeah. hot in the middle you could hurt yourself. Caution. Yeah, and then they moved <laughs> to baked, which kind of changes the experience. Um, when I was in college in the UK, you could order it à la mode, which I felt was so sophisticated. They would take they would take it out of the sleeve, put it in a little dish, and then put soft serve like right on top of it. And I was like, this is this is like that's a kind of high class." I mean, maybe that's why they have the
0: British baking show and we really just don't have something like that. I think British food is very underrated and that's a podcast for another time. I'm a big proponent of the greatness of British food. And it's not just because I'm married to a British guy.
1: Um, well, I I only travel to the UK for the sandwiches. I've never seen a group the of people sandwiches. know how to fare, you know, like really diversify the sandwiches. There's nothing great better than like you go to a conference in London and it's just platters and platters of different sandwiches. That's what I want. People are very anti sandwich for lunch. I love lots of little sandwiches.
0: And the British sandwich shop, which is 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 better than a. I think it's better than dinner because you get it's like pick and choose you get to pick all these different meats
1: you don't have to get one. Yeah. i went
0: to university in england too and the sandwich shop sort of close to where i used to have my tutorial was a place called nadia's and they made a thanksgiving sandwich
1: <gasps> i love the oh. thanksgiving sandwich it's the best sandwich <laughs> well you know when i so when i was studying abroad in college pret a manger was very popular because I mean, it's just sandwiches all the time, and you could get a proper Thanksgiving sandwich in the U.S. That's, it's harder to find. Maybe absolutely. And, and just for the
0: people listening at home, a proper sandwich would include, for me, the roll has to be buttered because it helps it go down. Yeah. Um, turkey stuffing, cranberry sauce. Oh, anything else?
1: Delicious. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's what that's all it needs. Um, sometimes gravy, but sometimes the gravy can counteract the cranberry sauce, but I love cranberry sauce on a sandwich. It's delicious. It's
0: delicious. If you haven't tried it, I don't care that it's 95 degrees outside, (laughs) you should have that sandwich. Um, One of the things, um, so your book talks about how, um, and as I'm doing this, I just want to say that I am taking, um, I added some lemon zest to this because I find that anything with blueberries needs some lemon zest.
1: Um, I, so during the pandemic and before I adopted my son, Sunday mornings were for homemade pancakes, huh. and I would use the Alison um, Roman um, recipe and a little bit of lemon zest, and then the blueberries. And when you griddle them, they taste like blueberry pie.
0: Absolutely, it's the greatest secret, and everyone should do it. And a little bit of vanilla. I always always oh have yeah a absolutely bit of vanilla. absolutely um, even if you're using Bisquick, and I I do not judge those. That use a box of things for theirs um because hey at least you're having pancakes um so let's just talk start talking about your book a little more because there's so much there and mcdonald's really begins to realize around the time of the civil rights movement that hey we got some um why did McDonald's, let me ask you the question, why did McDonald's suddenly decide to focus on African-Americans?
1: So what's happened in the book, so the first chapter is about the early days of McDonald's through the lens of African-American history and civil rights history. So often when people encounter like um, movies like The Founder with Michael Keaton or mm-hmm. stories about McDonald's it's all about how innovative it was and creative it was to mass produce you know hamburgers and fries, and it absolutely was. But what people lose sight of is that all of the institutions that make fast food fast food are predicated on racial exclusion. So if we're talking about the suburbanization of America, the growth of the highway system, the accessibility of cars, leisure travel, all of these things have a side to it that are really about American exclusion as and American prosperity. They go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So when McDonald's makes a concerted effort to come into African-American communities. They do it after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination for a number of reasons. One, there are a number of white franchise owners who no longer wanna do business in black America because Mm -hmm. they're afraid that they will be targets if another uprising happens. And people are becoming more and more um, demanding that business owners in their community contribute. The second thing is the Nixon administration, starting in 1969, says that they promote this idea of black capitalism. And that's the idea of putting money um, towards black owned businesses and black communities. And also in the late 1960s, I think corporations and not unlike this past summer of 2020, started to think about um, how they could start to cultivate different markets. And the African-American market was becoming bifurcated with a lot of people entering the middle class and a lot of people being left behind. And so a lot of industries saw this as an economic opportunity. And so you have this perfect storm where the civil rights establishment is becoming more welcoming and open to business as a strategy. And Mm -hmm. here comes McDonald's. And they start to see that if they go after African-American consumers, they can make lots of money Mm -hmm. and they can um, and they can. you know, really start to cultivate an identity in parts of America where the fast food industry hadn't been. And I think that this is really where the story starts to grow about what does it mean to really provide opportunity and at what costs.
0: Right, and and was the African American community welcoming instantly?
1: You know, it's, it's, it's really weird. Um, every community kind of has a different idea about McDonald's, so in Chicago, it's the hometown brand and this transition process is welcome. In Cleveland, there's a lot of debate about who should be making money in Black communities. In Portland, there's all sorts of conflict between um, McDonald's and the Black Panther Party for self-defense. So like every community is trying to figure out what McDonald's means. And I think that for readers today, it's hard for us to imagine a world without McDonald's in which people aren't sure what it is and what presence it should have in people's lives, and for African Americans during this time who are thinking about the failed promises of of civil rights legislation, the failed promises of the federal government, business starts to take on kind of a practical resonance, like, huh, maybe this is the place that we should stake our expectations for the future.
0: Um, You talk about Mr., was it a man named Petty, who was the first, Mm -hmm. um, like, man to take over a franchise. And McDonald's mm-hmm. helped him in a way. And then Mr. Petty, I was, I was interested to see that Mr. Petty chose carefully who he would hire and looked to women in the community.
1: Yeah, this is, there's this kind of story about McDonald's, how in the age of um, cart hops, when McDonald's was a small teen hangout, in um, San Bernardino, California, the McDonald's brothers got rid of young women in the stores. They said they were flirting, and they, you know, they caused too many problems. And so McDonald's didn't employ a lot of women throughout the, the late 50s and 60s. And one of the things that um, the African-American franchise owners are credited for is bringing back women workers into the restaurants, um, mm-hmm. seeing their skills, seeing their talents, probably the fact that a lot of women had experience um, you know managing a lot of uh, meals in a home and you know he believed that they could do it and so what was really interesting um, when I was researching the book meeting African-American women in their 50s and early 60s who were McDonald's managers who said you know like when we first entered McDonald's it was unusual for us to be managers like this was not a place where you saw a lot of black women being able to kind of leverage a career in food service. And and that's so different now because the service industry is, is comprised mostly of women, a lot of women of color. And so you see these kind of changing dynamics and the ways that we understand fast food today, a lot of that origin story is in this period of time. Are you adding peaches to that?
0: I am adding peaches to that. For those who can't see this, and who may be listening at home, maybe you heard the plop 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 of juicy New Jersey blueberries on top. And also I'm now cutting an extremely juicy New Jersey peach on top and it smells so good. And I'm not eating the skin that I'm peeling off, but if I weren't um, live on video, it would be being stuffed in my face. So that's, that looks fantastic. (laughs) It smells good too, because I made, it's not really a streusel, it's sort of more like a buttery, it's like a streusel topping. Mm-hmm. Um, it's flour and um, butter, really soft butter and brown sugar and a little bit of cinnamon. And that I'm going to sprinkle on top. And that's what's going to sink to the bottom.
1: It, so it sinks to the bottom. So you don't put the streusel on the bottom.
0: Just drink. It, basically, the bottom becomes the top and the top becomes the bottom. It well, just how rises up. <laughs> it's like alchemy right here. <laughs> Edible alchemy. Um, the... Um, black franchise owners also had to sort of, uh, fend off critics too. That said that, um, McDonald's was taking money out of the community as well. I mean, it was, I mean, nobody had an easy row.
1: No, I mean, everyone has opinions. Right. And I think what's so interesting is that, like, here was this idea that was supposed to extend opportunity to African-American business people who are shut out of bank lending, who have very, very limited opportunities for entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And but the fundamental question, and I think it still remains today, if you are a franchise owner, do you own your business? And if you are going to a McDonald's that's franchised by an African American, are you supporting a black owned business? And these were the types of questions that people were asking as they were trying to interrogate whether capitalism was really going to be the route for economic justice and racial freedom. And so I love the kind of dilemmas that the presence of McDonald's creates in a number of communities. At one point, the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP wants to boycott um, McDonald's, but not the black franchised ones, but the reason why they're boycotting them is because they say that McDonald's is restricting the opportunities for black-owned franchises, and it's like, wait, what do you want me to do again? This is so confusing, but I think it really just shows just the limits of this as a strategy for civil rights um, by placing it in the in the purview of business and a certain type of of, of capitalist venture.
0: What do you think McDonald's original, was was their original intent, and I say this is sort of a cynical person, was it sort of honest and upstanding in that way? I mean, were they there to help,
1: I think or was were, it? Yeah, sorry. I mean, I know, sorry. No, I would just say, like, businesses understand when they have to change in order to make money. So mm-hmm. McDonald's understood that the time was demanding a series of things from business And then they soon discovered they could actually make a lot of money doing these things. So, you know, whether it was a benevolent act on the part of McDonald's, like, probably not. But Mm -hmm. what it was, was smart because um, as these Black-owned franchises became more successful, it could be perceived as benevolent. It could be perceived as progressive. It could be perceived as making a difference. And that's ultimately, like, the goal, right? The perception of, of what's to come. So, you know, I don't think businesses ever act out of a place of kind of moral, um, like moral courage, but I do think that it is our responsibility as kind of people to like check businesses to make sure that, um, they can at least act in ways that we imagine are ethical and Mm -hmm. equitable and, and just.
0: That's a very fair way of saying it. That's very, very fair. Um, the, um, McDonald's throughout the 70s really began to grow um, as an important part of inner city for the most part, African-American community. And really like they took on an African-American advertising agency. I think they're sort of, I, strangely enough, I as a white person in a white suburb of New Jersey really didn't catch on to the fact that in 17, 1776, do I look that old? In 1976, I was very young, but during the bicentennial, the McDonald's did an entire campaign that was about like, hey, look at the other side of the revolution, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, these, this is the thing that I think is so important for us to understand when we're talking about you know, fast food and what people are eating, fast food has created a whole cultural world that is significant and important. Um, the ephemera from the black advertising agencies and the targeting of black communities is so fascinating because there's entire ad campa- campaigns that don't have any food in it. They talk about all the jobs that they've created for youth. There's sp- sponsorship of the United Negro College Fund and historically black colleges and universities. Like that is such a powerful message about how people see themselves as consumer citizens, but also how McDonald's has has found a way in that particular time, found a way to kind of sidle up to the places and institutions that are most important to African-Americans. One of the things I talk about in my book is that McDonald's is one of the first corporations to really celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And the MLK holiday was not popular the way we understand it now. Um, for the first maybe like 20 years, there was still, Contention about the day off, about the federal holiday, and about whether Martin Luther King Jr. was actually worthy of a holiday. And we've seen this kind of rapid transformation in his image. But like McDonald's lining up behind the MLK Day in the 1980s was a really big deal.
0: Um, and it's also, I, I think it's a really big deal that they were doing, that they were talking the way they were about the history of the founding of America in, oh. 17, in 1976. It's, you know, it, with all due respect to Lynn Mel Miranda, you know, it really it wasn't just you know the musical Hamilton that brought that to our attention. You know,
1: yeah. that there were oh, go ahead. Sorry, to the
0: rest of our to the rest of our attention is sort of, is what I mean to say, really. Um, yeah, go on. I'm sorry.
1: Oh well, there's just this whole like black cultural life that is sponsored by McDonald's, that's initiated by black franchise owners, that is very much kind of in a specific niche. But with that McDonald's branding tied to it, it it starts to show just the power of McDonald's. And, you know, I really wanted to write a book about how McDonald's replaced the state in inner city America. And, mm-hmm. you know, in thinking about all of the things that McDonald's provided communities, while other entities were not, I think it then forces us to say, well, if we don't want a fast food company to have all that power, what does it mean for our own ideas of redistributive um, economics and justice?
0: Mm -hmm. I think you talk about corporate welfare in the book, which um, really resonated with me and how um, Ferguson, I mean, the book starts (laughs) off and bless you, you. The book starts off in Ferguson and talks about the importance of that McDonald's on that that night and how it was there for everybody. Um, And you talk about how like, why does a place like Ferguson have a fast food restaurant investing itself in the community instead of, let's say the government investing in police reform or direct aid to people?
1: and the, Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, there was just a little lag. Can you say that last part again? Sure, it was the most important thing I've ever said. No, okay, Um,
0: I was just talking about how Ferguson was um, more likely, Ferguson is where your book starts. And in Ferguson, we see the importance of like one lone McDonald's as a place of even refuge during, what happened in Ferguson. And it, McDonald's was the was the entity that was invested in there instead of the state, which could have been invested in police reform, aid to the local community.
1: Yeah, you know, the McDonald's in Ferguson, Missouri, when I saw it in, on television in 2014, as I was kind of working through the ideas for this book, and I was like, oh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, because here you have all of this kind of chaos erupting and the place that's able to stay open, the place that's able to kind of bring everyone together is this McDonald's and it's upsetting and disturbing, but this is so much of how McDonald's has entered black America in these moments of racial unrest. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, um, that the, that the issues that animated the unrest in Ferguson Mm -hmm. were not some of the issues we often associate, like there are grocery stores in Ferguson. It's not a food desert. There are like restaurants and there are jobs ostensibly, but Mm -hmm. still, even though it isn't like a major city, it's a place that is not being served equally by the kind of state actors and a by you know, the common good. And so, of course, it's the McDonald's. And that McDonald's is franchised by an African American. His father was the first black mayor of East St. Louis, Illinois. His sister is a very important, um, groundbreaking uh, journalist, like one of the first black women um, in a number of newsrooms. And their story, right, like their American success story, it also is sobering or illuminating because they are also working within constraints. They're very successful people who are working in with the constraints of race in America. And that's what I, I think that was the kind of unintended part of the book. Like these franchise owners, some of them become very wealthy and some of them do very well economically and are very generous and because of race, They're still limited in the ways that they can articulate themselves as business people and as members of of a community. And that's the goal of this book, like to take a step back and say, oh, wait a second. What exactly are we talking about when in 2020, after the killing of George Floyd, we're talking about support more black businesses, that we're talking about a racial reckoning that doesn't talk about the conditions that led to Floyd's death, We're talking about expanding opportunity in some very limited places that I would argue aren't going to be the places where true change happens.
0: It's interesting. So where do you think, not to lay like a real heavy one on you, but like—but where where will true change happen then?
1: I think the change will happen when we start to really take seriously this idea of a public good. Because Mm -hmm. I think what... I think what has happened is that once we abdicate our responsibilities as citizens to corporations, once we start to believe that you have to have an underwriter in order for things to happen, then we stop consulting each other for ideas in community and we start saying, well, what does this funder or what does this corporation, what are they going to give us? And so I think the thing that I find most poignant is that at these moments, at these inflection points in American history, where people are crying out for justice, they are often told, "Well, you can start a business, or you might be able to get a management job or we'll infuse capital and say, you know i was I, I moved into a new house this past um fall, and I thought it was fascinating. I would click on I won't say the name of the companies, but furniture <laughs> companies that I like." And they will say you know we make a commitment to racial justice and i'm like oh this is amazing and i click on the link and they say well we're going to get 10 percent of our furniture designers are going to be black furniture designers i'm happy for those black furniture designers but i want to know what the wages in the warehouse are i want to know what the drivers the mostly drivers of color who are coming into my house and you know delivering a couch hurting themselves sometimes i want to know what they're making i want to know what their paid sick leave is and so i think that this is a kind of bait and switch strategy that we have to be so vigilant about. And I think that's what the history can teach us.
0: I am, I completely, um, 100% behind you. Uh, you, something that you said in your book, which is uh, builds out on what you were just, just said, which was, I can't go, I, every time I go to get myself food, whether I'm at a fast food restaurant, whether I'm at a fine restaurant, whether I'm in airport kiosk, I think you even talked about getting a salad. I you couldn't help but think about all the different people that were involved, not on the scale of like, I'm the king of pret a manger or I'm the owner of this <laughs> franchise, but the person who drives the truck or pick the lettuce, right? And how are they being taken care of?
1: And I, you know, um, and and that's exactly it. I mean, if we aren't thinking, if our vision of food justice is like more farmers markets and people eating kale instead of French fries, and that's where it ends. Then we're never going to kind of really um, use food as the vehicle for change that we can. Um, you know, when I was on the road with this book, a lot of people, um, you know, would say, "Oh, I'm really concerned about these issues, and you know, this and that," which is fantastic. Like, I want to teach kids, you know, healthy foods to eat. And I think that's great. But I always want to say, like, have you asked if their parents can afford their utilities? Have you asked how many jobs their parents are working? You know, have you asked if anyone has time to cook a meal? I mean, I think it's so interesting. Like, I am, you know, I'm the worst kind of stereotype of, I guess what they call us liberal elites. Um, You know, I read the New York Times every day and I have my gourmet coffees. I mean, I can annoy myself. But one of the things I think (laughs) is really fascinating as someone who grew up very working class the idea of cooking as a leisure activity versus a practical activity versus an activity you wish you could do because mm-hmm. you, you, you don't have that kind of time. And, you know, I ate a lot of fast food because my mom worked a lot of jobs and it's fast and it makes sense. I think fast food can be the most practical choice in a person's diet. If we look at the kind of, Ecosystem that you're making that choice in. And you know, here I am. I'm a college professor. I have a beautiful home. I have a beautiful kitchen. And I take such great joy in cooking because cooking is something that I can do with my leisure time. It's not something I do for other people, and it's not something I do um, to save money. I usually spend tons of money trying to cook these elaborate things, you know, going to all these markets, and I'm gonna get this one precious, you know, ingredient. I'm going to fry these capers, like whatever, you know, (laughs) but I, but I I understand, but I'm critical of this behavior because I know a life where you buy just the things that you need. You eat fast food because that's all the time you have for, Mm -hmm. and your choices are so constrained by economics and you may have a desire for a different diet, but you just don't see how it's possible.
0: Yeah, I really, I, I think, um, one of the big—I mean, one of the big messages, not just as a takeaway from this book, but just that we should all, as food obsessives and people who think we know best, is not to assume that we know best, and that people who um, eat a lot of fast food may not be doing it because they're ignorant about what these foods can do for them. It may be that they uh, work the night shift and breakfast with their kids is only going to happen in those 15 minutes before they then go to sleep before their next job
1: yeah and also like we have to also say like it's such a um, fast food is good at what it does Mm -hmm. right it can get us like super addicted to its product but you know it can it can make things interesting it makes things fun for kids it makes it makes things convenient i mean I think that there's a lot of reasons to um, critique the fast food industry, but they're good at what they do. And every time you think you're smarter than the commercials and the marketers and Madison Avenue, they will do something and, they're, and they'll remind you how smart they are because they understand the complex emotions we have as people. And that is how this you know worked, how the Golden Arches got in Black America is they understood where people were and what they were thriving for. And they gave them something that, was supposed to resemble the thing that they they longed for. And it works. And it really, really does work. It also
0: became a place in the community. I mean, they supported a lot of community efforts and franchisees were allowed to choose like whether they supported the Little League or the Double Dutch or whatever it was they were
1: supporting, right? Yeah. I mean, that kind of ability to be present in the community, 100%, that makes a big difference. And I think that... Those are the institutional, cultural and social factors that we can't discount when we say, well, you know, people should just hate McDonald's. Well, you can have critiques of McDonald's from a lot of places, but there's a reason why people feel very bonded and connected. And it's not necessarily because the food is so awesome. But you know, if this is the Black-owned business in your community and you want to support a Black-owned business, this is where you're going. If this is the place where you know people are going to get a fair shake and actually um, be able to employ youth, then that's where you're going. You know? And so I think that if we are concerned about these issues, we strip all of this power out of the corporation's hand and then we put it back into our collective hands and then we can grapple with the issues from that perspective.
0: I, I think that is um, such an important takeaway for everyone. That's why I really encourage everyone to read this book, because I think too many of us sort of drive by the golden arches and kind of feel, have some sort of sense of superiority to it. And I don't think that's fair,
1: right? Absolutely not. And also, I mean, I, I, I'm obsessed with fast food. I find it fascinating. I find it challenging. And I think it can, I think it can be the start of some very serious conversations.
0: I completely agree with you. Um, Just a few more questions before I pop this baby in the oven, and then I'll I'll send you a picture. Um, I wish there was smell-o-vision, because it does smell quite nice. This baby I'm talking about is not her beautiful four-month-old baby, (coughs) which we don't put enough, but this um, lovely um, fruit buckle that I've made, Um, just for those listening at home. Don't worry. at, in your job as um, a professor of African-American studies, in, over the past couple of years or so, there have been some issues that have come up, critical race theory. And i wondering what... Uh, have, have you seen any change in your students and what they're interested in, their approaches?
1: Yeah, you know, my students, um, I think, are... Are learning in a moment in which they seek clarity, in which they want to be on the right side of history. That um, because of social media platforms, everyone can declare who they were and who they are right now. And I think that there's something about that that can be really important for young people. Um, I think they, I think they want, I think they just want to know that their world can be big and accessible, and they want to. Go deep into like the world's problems. I think students have always been like that. but I think the sense of urgency and the sense of skepticism and the sense of disappointment that they have experienced over the past decade in this country where they they see such incredible contradictions. They see technology opening up the world and then they see, you know racial violence limiting it. They see um, this incredible um, incredible models of service and then they see the collapse of the government essentially right and so i think in, in these cycles of contradiction they are very open for moving towards clarity unfortunately everyone else around them has so much nonsense and noise that it gets in the way of them doing that
0: yeah i see a great deal of skeptic skepticism and um depression even around uh, even in kids who are very Focused on making things better, like a, yeah. a little bit of a sense of hopelessness, and I wonder how if, if you see that as well. Do you? Do you I think see, it can evolve into something better. Please, you
1: know, I see some despondency and some doubt, but I think this is why history becomes such a powerful tool for change, um, because they understand that they're not the first generation to grapple with these issues, and that the the moral courage, the 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 desire and the resilience of other generations, I think, can shape theirs. Nothing was more powerful to me than after the 2016 election, the number of students who said, You know, I talked to my grandparents about this. My parents didn't have much to offer, but my grandparents had a view of the world and they had seen so much change that they could kind of join me in my sense of disillusionment and my anger. And I think that was really powerful. And so I think this is what history does for us, right? It provides us a perspective we know the answer and so it allows us to be more empathetic for those who didn't have the answers.
0: Let me just ask you quickly, um, what is it that you're working on next?
1: So I would like to embark on um, kind of a trilogy of looking at the civil rights struggle, thinking about um, the period from the March on Washington to the years and decades after King's death from different perspectives, thinking about gender, thinking about um, leadership, ideas of leadership after King's assassination, and looking at some of the enduring questions of the people of that civil rights generation who are still with us, who made it into the 21st century and their assessment of what they've seen. So um, in between um, bottle feedings and planning (laughs) meals, uh, I'm getting a little bit of writing done.
0: That's fantastic. I look forward to it. Um, and I thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm just only sorry you. I can't
0: share this with you. I can't well, share next my
1: time I would love to cook with you. And um, maybe when my son's fifteen, I'll have some time. <laughs> or <laughs> exactly. not.
0: Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to Dr. Marcia Chatelaine for joining me today. You can find my recipes on my website, marissarothkopf.com. Please do that nicest of things. Read Marsha's book and please follow me on Twitter and subscribe to the Secret Life of Cookies podcast. Thank you so much.